we have begun a new series focused on the Sermon on the Mount, which is the greatest sermon ever told and the most important sermon that you can ever hear. And let me tell you why. The Sermon on the Mount reveals God's whole new way of being human. This is Jesus's vision of the good life. And that's what we all want to know. This is the ultimate question. What is the good life? How can we experience true, lasting happiness? But you see, when it comes to happiness, everyone else merely offers advice about how to try to be happy based on what this world alone has to offer. But what if there's another world? What if God's world is breaking into this one? Well, then that changes the rules of the game. That changes what is possible. And that is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. The central unifying theme of Jesus' message is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And the purpose of the sermon is not to tell you what you need to do in order to enter into the kingdom, but rather it shows you who you become when the power and the presence of God come into your life. When Jesus comes into your life, you become, in a word, different. You become an entirely different kind of person. And you can't get this anywhere else. You can only receive this new life in and through Jesus. Now, I said at the outset that Jesus primarily delivered this message to his disciples, his immediate band of followers, but but the crowds were listening in. And that continues to be the case. He, He delivers this message to his followers, but Everyone, regardless of their background or beliefs, should look on and listen in to what Jesus has to say. And therefore, the question that I want us to take up together this morning is, what does it actually mean to be an authentic follower of Jesus? We might admire Jesus from a distance, but as the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard once said, the goal is not to merely be an admirer of Jesus, but a follower of Jesus. And to be a follower means that we become a disciple, a student, a learner, an apprentice of Jesus' life and message until his life becomes our own. Now, you may be familiar with the young protagonist Holden Caulfield in J.D. Salinger's classic novel, The Catcher in the Rye. And if you are, you may recall that there's a place where Holden Caulfield reflects on his views on religion. He admires Jesus, but he has no time whatsoever for the disciples. This is how he describes it in a way that only Holden Caulfield could. He he says, "I, I felt like praying or something when I was in bed, but I couldn't do it. I can't always pray when I feel like it. In the first place, I'm sort of an atheist. I like Jesus and all but I don't care too much for most of the other stuff in the Bible. Take the disciples, for instance. They annoy the heck out of me, if you want to know the truth. They were all right after Jesus was dead and all, but while he was alive, they were about as much use to him as a hole in the head. All they did was keep letting him down. I like almost anybody in the Bible better than the disciples. Well, Holden Caulfield concludes that the disciples are phonies, And if you know the novel, you know that that is his preferred word to describe all the adults in his life. The disciples are just phonies. And if we're honest, we know that many people who call themselves Christians really are phonies. And they are about as much used to Jesus as a hole in the head. 
So if we want to avoid a similar fate, then we need to pay very close attention to Jesus' words here. So I'd like us to turn to some of the most famous, most well-known words that Jesus ever spoke about salt and light in his Sermon on the Mount. And as we do, I'd like us to consider three things. What do these metaphors of salt and light tell us, first of all, about our world? What do these metaphors tell us about ourselves? And what do these metaphors tell us about Jesus? So if you would, let me invite you to open up a Bible to Matthew chapter 5. You'll find this passage printed on page 810 of the Pew Bible. It's also printed in your order of worship. I'll be reading Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is God's word. It's trustworthy and it's true and it's given to us in love. Will you please join me in a word of prayer? Father, we acknowledge that apart from you, these words will remain nothing more than letters on a page. And so we pray that by your grace, the same spirit that once inspired these words would illumine them for us so that Jesus' words might catch fire and burn within our hearts, leading us to a living encounter with him. We pray this in the strong and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I'm going to make it easy for you today. If I could sum up everything I'm trying to say today in one phrase, it would be this. Don't play it safe. Don't play it safe. Now, if we pay attention to the context, Jesus spoke these words about salt and light immediately after issuing his Beatitudes, which conclude with a word of blessing for those who may suffer mistreatment precisely because of their close identification with Jesus. Now, that sounds stressful, does it not? Those words would be anxiety-producing, but that is why, precisely why, Jesus speaks these words about salt and light. If you're tracking with Jesus so far, Jesus assumes that you're going to be afraid. But he says, don't give in to fear. Jesus here is a little bit like a mother bird. He is deliberately pushing us out of the nest. He's pushing us out of the nest. And it may be that we bump our head on the way down, but we've got to learn how to fly. We've got to figure out how to spread our wings. So he's telling us, don't waddle around like a flightless bird. Don't be a penguin. You've got to get out of the nest. So don't play it safe. It might be scary, but you've got to be fearless or else you defeat the whole purpose of being his disciple in the first place. So the first thing that I'd like us to do is consider what these metaphors of salt and light tell us about our world. Now notice the, the word you here is in the plural. So Jesus is saying that Christians collectively as a group are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. But if that's true, what do these metaphors tell us about the world? Well, in the ancient world, before the days of refrigeration, salt was primarily used as a preservative 
and an antiseptic. You would rub salt into meat or fish in order to keep it from rotting. You would pour it over a wound in order to keep it from festering. So the world, of course, is God's good creation. This is the world that God loves, that he died to save, and yet Jesus is suggesting that left to its own devices, the world in which we live is putrefying like rotten meat, and it is a dark place. Now, I want us to stop and reflect about that for a moment because this runs against the grain of most of our modern thinking. Recall some of the words that we use to describe different blocks of time, at least within Western history. We speak of the Dark Ages, the Renaissance, the Rebirth, the Enlightenment, which means that for over 500 years, we modern Western people have assumed that as knowledge increases, And as we make advances in science and technology, the light of reason will eventually dispel the darkness of ignorance. And therefore, we will experience an unlimited linear path towards progress. The world will just keep getting better and better. We will be able to create heaven on earth through our own power and ingenuity. If you read some of the great authors or thinkers at the end of the 19th century or the beginning of the 20th century, you should be struck by the optimism with which they speak. Their optimism is really unparalleled in the history of the world. But that belief in unfettered progress was a little hard to hold on to after the catastrophe of the 20th century. After all the horrors we experienced from two world wars, from the Holocaust and from the atomic bomb, one year after the conclusion of World War I, the poet W.B. Yeats wrote these famous lines from his poem, The Second Coming. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy has been loosed upon the world. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Things fall apart. And we know that. We know that at an individual physical level. Our bodies fall apart. Over time, they don't work the way they used to or the way they were supposed to. I just went to the eye doctor this last week. The older I get, the worse my eyesight becomes. You may not know this because I wear contacts all the time, but... Without corrective lenses, I cannot see more than three inches in front of my face. Our bodies fall apart. Over time, they come undone. And it's not just true at that individual physical level. It's also true at the personal psychological level. Things fall apart unless we keep a close watch on ourselves. It's so easy for us to slip into anxiety or depression or various forms of narcissism. We become ever more self-absorbed. Things fall apart at the relational level. Give it enough time, and and all of our relationships tend to go bad at home, at work, at at school. It's almost as if the the, the closer we get to know people, the harder it is to, to get along, and therefore it takes energy. We have to put forth enormous effort to keep our relationships healthy and strong, and that's especially true when we're talking about relationships across difference. Things fall apart. And we know that that is true at the societal level as well. It may have been that people were marked by this intense optimism at the turn of the last century, but if anything, people might now be giving into 
deep cynicism and pessimism about the world in which we live. As we start a new millennium, many people would agree that mere anarchy has been loosed upon the world. It's not that we merely have to combat the perennial challenges of war, poverty, hunger, racism, or injustice, but we're dealing with deep political polarization and widespread cultural fragmentation. There's no agreement anymore on what is true with a capital T. There's no consensus about eternal values like what is good or bad or right or wrong. And there's no trust. There's no trust anymore in institutions or authority figures. And we have become increasingly confused as a society about how we should think about politics or race or class or gender or sexuality. We are deeply muddled. Now, of course, it's true that in God's common grace, God has put restraining influences in place. So the world is not nearly as bad as it could possibly be. He's established institutions like the state and like marriage and like family in order to curb our selfish, natural tendencies and to keep evil in check. So things could always be worse. Things could always be worse. But the point is that apart from God's grace, the world is rotting from the inside out and the world is shrouded in darkness. Now, if that's the case, if that's what these metaphors tell us about our world, then what is Jesus trying to tell us about ourselves? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now, notice he doesn't say you ought to be the salt of the earth or you should try really hard to be the light of the world. He says you are these things. So he's not telling you to become something that you're not. He's telling you who you already are as a result of his grace, as a result of his work in your life. Now live that way. This is your identity. Now live that way. Now, everybody knows, everybody knows that Christians are supposed to be in the world, but not of it. But the real question is, what does that actually mean? What does that look like in practice? So let's take a closer look at what Jesus is calling us to be in light of these metaphors. And, and let me give you three things to think about. As we consider these metaphors, consider salt and light are distinctive. Salt and light are transformative, and salt and light are penetrating. So number one, rather than assimilating to our broader culture, Jesus is calling us to be distinct. We're salt and light, so we're not supposed to blend into the environment like chameleons out of fear, but rather we're called to be distinct. So the first thing to note about salt and light is that they are distinct entities, and that is the source of their value. Salt is valuable precisely because it is completely different from the object in which it is placed. It has nothing in common with the meat into which it is rubbed. It has nothing in common with the wound onto which it is poured. And light is the complete opposite of darkness. You can't just have a little bit of light, but that is its value. It doesn't take much. Even a small little candle can pierce even the darkest night. So both salt and light serve a useful purpose only to the extent that they are different from their surroundings. 
If salt loses its taste, Jesus says, it's not good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underneath people's feet. Now, technically, any good chemist will tell you that salt, sodium chloride, is a stable compound, which means that salt cannot lose its saltiness. It cannot lose its distinctive flavor. Ah, but remember this, that in the ancient world, there were no refineries. So the average ancient person didn't have access to pure salt, pure sodium chloride. Rather, what they called salt was usually some kind of white mixture that contained sodium chloride as well as a number of impurities. And that's what Jesus is warning us against. Don't lose your saltiness by being diluted with impurities. So how do you stay salty? Well, the Sermon on the Mount is a good place to start because Jesus here is laying out his whole new way of being human. He's showing us the distinctive beliefs and practices that we should embrace as his followers. And therefore, when people look at you, they should notice something strikingly different about you. Now, they may not be able to put their finger on it right away, but they should be struck by the way in which you conduct yourself in public and in private. There should be something different about a Christian's business practices or the way in which they relate to people of different races or classes or ethnicities. People should be bewildered but intrigued at the same time by the way you handle disagreement or conflict or the way in which you define both success and failure, the way you approach money and sex and power. You should leave people scratching their heads Wondering what it is about you that makes you so distinct. You are only of value to the world unless you are absolutely different from it. If you are not absolutely different from the world around you, then you have nothing to offer the world that it doesn't already have. So number one, rather than assimilating to the broader culture, we're called to be distinct. But then secondly, rather than attacking the broader culture... We're called to be transformative. We're called to change it. You see, salt and light are both change agents. They're transformative entities. They change the environment in which, it is, in which they are placed. If you put salt in meat, something happens. It's amazing that the salt prevents the bacterial decay. If you switch on the light in the midst of the darkness, something happens. The darkness is dispelled. And it doesn't take much. A little bit can affect the whole. And I think this is what is so encouraging for us as Christians to hear. In the ancient world as well as our own day, salt was common. It was not expensive. It wasn't especially valuable. Salt was seemingly small and insignificant. And yet, just a little bit of salt makes a huge difference. And likewise, we Christians, we might seem small and insignificant in the grand scheme of things, and yet, we have the ability to permeate the whole, to affect the whole environment, to influence every sphere of society. So do you realize the power you have simply by showing up? If you're a follower of Jesus, if you are the salt of the earth, if you are the light of the world, then when you enter a room, when you join a team, when you serve on a committee, when you move into a neighborhood, something happens. 
The environment is now different simply because you are present. Why is that? Well, salt not only preserves, it enhances, it, it draws out the flavor. And that's the effect you have in any space you walk into. You bring a zest and a joy for life that people can't find anywhere else. And why? Why? Perhaps because you're not merely looking out for number one. You're not just looking to figure out how to enhance your own life or your own well-being, but no, you walk into a situation and you're thinking to yourself, how can I bring the best out of my team or out of my colleagues or out of my neighbors, out of my family? How do I bring out the best of my school or my neighborhood or my community or my city? Salt not only preserves, it enhances, and light not only illuminates, it clarifies. It's hard for us to appreciate living in a city like New York, utter darkness, because we don't experience it very often. Unless you were here on the blackout in 2003, when you experience utter darkness, especially when you're not expecting it, it can create vertigo. It can be deeply destabilizing and disorienting. Even when there's a little bit of light, it can be hard to make out the true shape of another object or to see its full colors. That's why we struggle at, at, at twilight to see clearly, but you see the light not only illuminates, it clarifies, and that's the impact that a Christian has on his or her environment. You help people see things the way they really are. And you not only reveal the truth of how things are or should be, but you, you bring out the beauty in life. You help people around you see the world in full living color. It's an amazing responsibility and a beautiful gift that we can be salt and light in our world. The other night we hosted a gathering for the parents as well as the volunteers in our youth ministry and as we went around the room introducing ourselves, I asked the volunteers in particular to share why would they dedicate so much time and energy and effort to serve the young people in our congregation. And reflecting on it afterwards, I realized that most people responded to that question in one of two ways. Some people said that they had very negative experiences with the church when they were in middle school or in high school. And for that reason, their faith was dormant or non-existent during those middle school and high school years. And it was only later that they experienced the transformative power of the gospel for themselves. And now, why are they volunteering? Because they want to make sure that no one misses out on what Jesus has to offer in that important formative stage of life. And then there's others who said they never would have understood the thrilling news of who Jesus is and what he has done for us unless a friend, a middle school friend or a high school friend had gone out there on a limb and had invited them to come to church with them or to attend their youth group. And, and maybe at the time it seemed so small, it was an inauspicious beginning, but now looking back over the years, they realized that that was the thing that changed their life. It changed the whole trajectory of their life. And now they're volunteering because they want to make sure that everyone has the same opportunity to hear the transformative message of the gospel during their middle school and high school years. Do you realize the transformative impact that you can have on the people who are close to you? You might only be 
11 or 12 years old. Think about that. You might only be 11 or 12 years old, but you could invite a friend to come to church with you or to attend youth group, and that might be the very thing that changes the trajectory of their life forever. Salt and light might seem small and insignificant, but they permeate the whole. They change the environment. So thirdly, what is Jesus trying to tell us? Well, rather than withdrawing from the broader world around us, we're called to penetrate it. Thirdly, salt and light are penetrating entities. They have no effect unless they come into contact with something else. Now, you might ask yourself, well, why don't Christians have a greater effect on the world in which we live? I mean, after all, we've got the life the power of Jesus at our disposal. Why don't Christians have a bigger effect on our universities and on our schools or on government or business or media or technology? Why don't we have a greater influence? Well, think of Jesus' metaphors. If if a piece of meat is rotting and going bad, we might ask, well, whose fault is that? But there's no point in blaming the meat. The real question is, where's the salt? And if a house is dark when evening falls, there's no point in blaming the house. The question is, where's the light? We should assume some measure of responsibility for the lack of influence on our wider world. We bear some of the blame if the world is falling apart, if it is shrouded in darkness. Salt prevents decay, but only if it's rubbed into the meat. Light dispels the darkness, but only if it is diffused throughout a room. Now, we can stockpile as much salt as we want. We can stockpile it in our cupboards. But salt is not going to do any good on the shelf. And it would be ridiculous and it would be stupid to light a lamp and then to try to hide it and make it invisible. Salt has to be spread out or it is worthless. And light has to shine out or it is useless. And that is what Jesus is warning us against here. If we don't try to penetrate the world around us because we're afraid, we're afraid of being contaminated or we're afraid of being overwhelmed, then we are in grave danger of becoming either a worthless or a useless Christian. David Martin Lloyd-Jones had this to say, reflecting on this passage. He says, there's nothing in God's universe that is so utterly useless as a merely formal Christian. I mean by that one who has the name but not the quality of a Christian. They appear to be Christian, but they are not. The formal Christian is a man who knows enough about Christianity to spoil the world for him but he does not know enough about it for it to be of any positive value. He does not go with the world because he knows just enough about it to be afraid of certain things, but on the other hand, he has no real fellowship with the Christian. He has enough Christianity to spoil everything else, but not enough to give him real happiness, peace, and joy, and abundance of life. Now, his words are a little sharp here, but he goes on to say, I think such people are the most pathetic people in the world. Our Lord certainly says they are the most useless people in the world. They do not function as worldlings or as Christians. 
They are nothing, neither salt nor light, neither one thing nor the other. They refuse to regard themselves as of the world, while on the other hand, they do not enter truly into the life of the church, and they feel it themselves, and others feel it. There's always this barrier. They are finally outsiders. They are more outside, in a sense, than the man who is entirely worldly and makes no claim or profession of faith because he at least has his own society. Of all people, then, these are the most pathetic and the most tragic. And the solemn warning which we have in this verse is the warning of our Lord against getting into such a state and a condition. So I want you to stop and think about your various spheres of influence in life, whether small or large. Think about your building, your neighborhood, your school, your place of work, your department, your team. Think about your community, your social circle, your industry. Can you honestly say that you have penetrated these spaces like salt and light? Or have you tried to assimilate or to attack or to withdraw in order to avoid standing out because you don't want to be seen as different? Don't play it safe. You have to take a risk. You have to spread your wings. You have to stretch yourself if you want to have a transformative impact in the world around you. We are called to hinder the world's decay, and we are called to dispel its darkness. And the only way we can do that is as salt and light. Now, I realize that might sound like a lot of pressure. So let me end with a word of encouragement. I'll conclude by considering what these metaphors not only tell us about our world or about ourselves, but what do these metaphors of salt and light tell us about Jesus? Look, let's get one thing straight. Christians are not naive, starry-eyed optimists. We know that we cannot change the world. Only Jesus can do that. We know how ingrained sin and evil is, not only in individuals or in social structures, but within our own selves. And therefore, we have to humbly recognize that the change that we want to see in the world has to begin. It has to begin with us. So we're not starry-eyed optimists, but we're not cynical pessimists either, like a growing number of people at the turn of a new millennium. We don't say, as Christians, in despair... Look at what the world is coming to. No, as Christians, we say in wonder, look who is coming into the world. Look who's coming into the world. God himself is coming to rescue and save the world he loves. So our hope lies not in ourselves, but it lies in Jesus. We know that the world will not be perfected until Jesus returns and makes all things new. But the fact that we cannot perfect the world now doesn't mean that we can't make it a little bit better. And so as salt and light, we know that we have a responsibility to do what we can with the time that we have been given to make a difference. So we're not naive optimists, but we're not cynical pessimists either. We are hopeful realists. We're realistic about the world in all of its sin and misery, but we're hopeful because we know that Jesus is going to finish the work that he started and he involves us in that process. So we are a city on a hill. As a community of people who named the name of Christ, we're meant to be a city on a hill, and you can't hide the light. We as a community are meant to be a beacon of hope, 
like a lighthouse. We're supposed to help guide people to their true home and to allow his light to shine through us. The character and the quality of our life together is meant to provide the world around us with a working model of what life will be like when Jesus finally brings heaven to bear on this world, where he makes this world as it is in heaven. But the first question that we need to consider is, have we been lit up with his light and his life? A lamp has to be lit. So have you been lit? Have you been lit with the light and the life of Jesus? You can't be salt and light unless you're first lit by his light and by his love. But switching metaphors, I would say that we are far more like the moon than anything else because we do not generate any light ourselves. We simply reflect the light of the sun. But that is what will lead others to give glory to God. It's as we live out our distinctive beliefs and practices as Christians, as we seek to have a transformative impact on our various spheres of influence, as we try to penetrate all the spaces where God has called us, others will see that light passing through us and then trace it back to the source, which is our Heavenly Father. So the point is that the, the, the power for this life comes not from ourselves, but from Jesus. See, what do these metaphors ultimately tell us? Jesus is the true salt of the earth. Jesus' life was utterly distinct. He brought joy and zest wherever he went. When people encountered Jesus, they marveled at him. They'd never met anyone like him in their lives. They were astonished at his teaching. And he was absolutely pure, no admixture of impurities. And yet, despite all that, people treated him like nothing. Like nothing. And they trampled him under their feet. And yet, Jesus' body did not see corruption. No, God would not let his body decay, but rather he raised him up to new life so that even now, in him, all things hold together. All things hold together in Christ. He's the true salt of the earth and he is the true light of the world. He said, anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness. In him, there's no darkness at all. He is pure light. And yet even so, they tried to douse the light by hanging him up on a cross. But don't you see, Jesus was crucified on a hill. And from that hill, the light of his love and life continues to shine, pointing to the self-giving love of God and waking people up to the reality of their need for the kind of life that only he can give. And it's only as we receive that light and life that we become salt and light in the world around us. So don't play it safe. Don't give in to your fears. Don't try to assimilate to the world around you. Be distinctive. Don't attack the world around you. Be transformative. And don't withdraw from the world around you, but penetrate it as the salt and the light that you already are. Let me pray for us. Father, we know in our heart of hearts that there are not only many people who call themselves Christians, but we ourselves may call ourselves Christians, and yet we are phonies.
we are about as much use to you as a hole in the head because we have given up our distinctive identity as salt and light. So help us to reclaim our true identity in Christ and to live out this calling to be distinctive, to be transformative, and to be penetrating for the good of the world around us. Make us different so that we might make a difference. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.